This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. You can be seated, church. My name is Mike Godfrey. If you don't know that, I am an associate pastor here. Our senior pastor, our lead pastor, David, is traveling, visiting family. And so we pray for him to enjoy his time away. Uh, and he has tasked me with continuing our journey through the book of Hebrews. So uh, let's open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews. And we'll be in Hebrews chapter 3 this morning. Our, our text for this morning is chapter Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 19. Uh, and so... One of the things that I want to do while you're turning there is kind of provide a little context before we read our text and remind you the Christians that are addressed by the author of Hebrews in this book are amid persecution and suffering. Later in the book, uh, the author writes this, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised." You see, these Christians, these suffering brothers and sisters were at a breaking point and some were concluding that following Jesus was just too costly, too hard. And that in the end, the best solution to end persecution and suffering was to go back to their former way of life, to attempt to revive and relive the old covenant. To use a popular modern word, they were tempted to deconstruct their faith in Jesus and reconstruct a Jewish faith. This is the reason that Hebrews is filled with so many Old Testament quotations. You see, the author is making an overwhelming argument for the sufficiency and superiority of Christ from the Old Testament. Last week we saw how Moses served as a signpost to the greater one who was to come, the Lord Jesus. And we left off last week with an appeal to hold fast our confidence in Christ and even boast in the unshakable hope we have. You see, what we're going to learn through the book of Hebrews is that the remedy for hurting Christians is to cling to Christ rather than letting go of him. So as we begin, maybe this morning you don't feel a temptation or a, a stirring to convert to Judaism. But I wonder if some here might be asking in their hearts this morning, should I really keep at this Christianity thing? Maybe even now you remember fondly the way life used to be before you followed Christ. And you'd be honest enough to say that in your heart you wonder if it'd be easier to just turn back. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home and, and you think, if I could get away from Jesus, I could finally relax. Maybe you're hurting today because life is hard for you. Even this week, you may have felt suffocated by suffering. For some of you this morning, you might be thinking there's real worldly benefit to turn away from Christ. Maybe you'll get that promotion at work if you just drop some of the Jesus talk. Or students, maybe your friends will like you more and include you more 
If you'll just adopt the way that they think and act like Jesus isn't real. Maybe today you're thinking you will actually find rest by running away from Jesus. So if that's you this morning, I'm glad you're here. Thank you for being here. And I hope you'll listen to what God says because as today, what we're going to see in our text is that the only hope for rest and peace that we crave is found in Jesus. So with that in mind, follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Warnings are gifts. Warnings are gifts that we would receive and welcome them if we would have ears to hear them. The, the sirens that tell us of a tornado are not an imposition upon our time, but a provision for our safety. If you're a parent, you actually know what it's like to warn your kids about danger. Like in my house, I warn my kids about when it comes to music. Don't listen to Carrie Underwood and Luke Bryan. That is the path to destruction. They will destroy you. I'm kidding. I, actually, I'm not. No, I, my, my daughter heard that this week. That, the, the boy who cried wolf was evil because he warned of danger when there was none, Right? So then when the real danger came, no one believed him. That is not our, our task today. When God provides us a gracious warning in his word, it is to our great benefit and even our eternal safety to hear it and heed it. We should rejoice and obey when we consider the gracious warning that the Lord gives. We're going to consider it today under two points. First, ain't no rest for the wicked. Point number one, ain't no rest for the wicked. Our text begins with a quotation, maybe you saw it in your, your Bible set off from the margins, a quotation from Psalm 95, where the psalmist warns his hearers of the example, with the example of the Israelites who witnessed the greatness of God in miraculous works, but because of their resistant and hard hearts, died in the wilderness under God's wrath and judgment. Now for us to understand what the author of Hebrews is doing, 
It's good for us to look at Psalm 95, but we, we also recognize that Psalm 95 is looking beyond itself too, further back to something else before it. Kind of like the movie Inception, the author of Hebrews is explaining Psalm 95, which is explaining Exodus 17, which even points back to Genesis 3. All pointing to one great danger, the danger of an unbelieving heart. So what I want to do for a minute is follow the breadcrumbs. I want to follow them out and then work our way back in. Starting with Exodus 17, where we read this. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Did you catch that last part? They, though they quarreled with Moses, their rebellious heart was actually revealed in an offensive question and a foolish question against the Lord. Is the Lord among us or not? And the question is offensive and rebellious because of what they had witnessed. They had seen the plagues against Egypt. They had celebrated the Passover. They had seen the parting of the Red Sea. And they'd see the subsequent destruction of the greatest army in the world. They had been preserved by and cared for by God in earth-moving ways. And when they face thirst, they question, is he really real? Is he really with us? In essence, they're saying that when God does mighty deeds for us, he can be trusted. But now I'm thirsty. And instead of trusting God, who can move the sea, they reveal their hardened and unbelieving hearts, which leads to their death. Their rebellion brought death, their own death in the wilderness, and they did not enter the promised land, the, the promised rest of God. The psalmist picks this event in Israel's history to write a poem, a song that the people would sing as a warning against repeating the same sin. Psalm 95 begins with beautiful reminders of God's grace, but it ends with a warning plea not to be like the generation who saw such great wonders and hardened their hearts against the Lord who had redeemed them. Both the psalmist and the author of Hebrews exposed the real problem. The root of the rebellion in the people of Israel was their unbelieving heart. It was their hardened hearts. Look again at verse 8 in our text where it says, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in 
the wilderness. The problem wasn't a lack of God's provision for his people. It wasn't that God hadn't kept up his end of the bargain. No, the problem was that in the time of testing, instead of their faith growing, the test actually exposed that they didn't actually have faith in God at all, that their hearts were hard. So maybe you've attended an exercise class or you learned in an exercise class a formula for progress. Muscle fatigue that results in muscle growth is a result of time under tension. If you want a muscle to heal, repair, or grow, you must place that muscle under tension for a controlled amount of time. That fatigues the muscle, but it also stimulates growth and repair. Faith in God is similar. Our trust in his character, in his provision, and his person grows with time under tension. Therefore, the psalmist says the drought and the thirst of the people was a time of testing by the Lord, and the people failed because of their hard and unbelieving hearts. Brothers and sisters, hear me. The Lord brings testing and trials to our lives. And here's an unpleasant but real truth. You don't get a say in what they are. Because if you did, you would never introduce struggle into your own life. Right? We'd program our lives to be a life of ease. We'd smooth out our career paths. We'd silence our family relationships. We'd keep up our physical health and our bank accounts so that our lives would meet little to no resistance in the world. We don't tend to push towards struggle and pain. And even when we do, we want to control the type of struggle. We want to control the timing of it. And we also want to control the duration of the difficulty. But can you see that you will never truly trust God then? Because you'd be too busy trusting yourself. We naturally want the world to bend to our wishes and the God that we serve in wonderful mercy and uncomfortable grace rescues us from our self-infatuation by giving us struggles. In this, it is in the trials that, that when, we, when we don't have the answer, we don't know why they're happening, or we don't know the plan, that what we actually believe is revealed. Israel had experienced glorious redemption, miraculous power, and for the lack of water, they rebelled against the Lord of the universe. I mean, see what their hardened, unbelieving, rebellious hearts cost them. Look at verse 11. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Unbelief and rebellion brought about the wrath of God and the forfeit of his rest. The rest of the promised land. A whole generation of rebels except for Joshua and Caleb die in the wilderness where they relied on themselves rather than on the living God. Brothers and sisters, I want to say this. I don't know your struggle or your trial or your pain in these days. But I do know this, that the God who loves you and is your heavenly father is sovereign over every one of them. The testing he brings into our lives is never easy at the moment. Yet it produces in you and in me that which is of far greater value than whatever you lose. Some of you know the name John Newton, perhaps because he penned the hymn Amazing Grace. But he wrote another hymn that is beautiful and it captures the fight for faith in the midst of pain. He wrote this. I asked the Lord that I might grow 
in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way that almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yes, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe crossed all the fair designs I'd schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will you pursue your worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you may seek your all in me. Trials, if we trust in God, deepen our faith. That's their design. Listen to Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11. The author says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines who? The one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Listen, you may not like that the Lord tests his people. But church, he does so for our good. He does so to grow us in grace and faith. He tests at times to reveal those who are truly his. This reality of God's action does not make him uncaring or unloving. Rather, the love he has for us is displayed in the real discipline that he brings into our lives. Because it is the faithful warnings of God that preserve us from pursuing the very things that will take us to death. The Israelites failed to trust in the Lord, that he could do more than they could ask or imagine. And the pain that they endured and the thirst did not serve to draw them close to him. In fact, they ran from him. So the author of Hebrews uses as a timeless and timely example the people of Israel, to show these Christians what they needed to hear most in their moment of pain. 
In their moment of testing, they did not need to run back to the old covenant to a mirage because that's all it was and still is. There is no old covenant. It is passed away. The new has come through Christ. The dangerous lie that was tempting these believers was simply a spin on the first lie. Did God really say? Only instead of a tree with fruit that he was tempting them to turn from, they were tempted to turn from the tree where their Savior bled and the empty tomb where he rose from the grave. There ain't no rest for the wicked. Not even as the song says, till we close our eyes for good. The wicked will not rest when they die. No, friends, hell is no place of rest. Hell is a real place of God's wrath and judgment. And those who die with hearts hardened in rebellion and unbelief, they don't enter into a rest no matter how many times we say, may they rest in peace. The warning of not entering God's rest is a warning to all who refuse to believe in Christ. It's the warning of eternal separation from the grace and mercy of God and to exist for eternity under eternal torment under his wrath. This is what the author drives home in verses 16 through 19 of our text with his questions, his rhetorical questions. Look, verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? It was. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? It was. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? He did swear to the disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therein lies the warning. Unbelief birthed rebellion. And what these Christians needed to hear and remember is that the unbelief of their forefathers was no example to follow, but one to flee. They needed to hear the warning and have their faith renewed in Jesus. The author of Hebrews warns these Christians to learn the same lesson that the psalmist gave. Look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The danger of unbelief, hear me, hear me, church, the danger of unbelief does not expire. Unbelief is a root sin which poisons the growth of faith in the heart of a Christian. But then what do we do? What do we do when doubts arise and when unbelief seems to grow and no matter how much we're trying to trust Jesus, it seems like all we've got is a flicker of faith? Well, that leads to the second point today. Point number two. Find rest, my soul, in God alone. Find rest, my soul, in God alone. David's been showing us how Hebrew literature works differently than ours. We Westerners think in a very linear fashion from start to finish. We put the climax of our stories at the end. But Hebrew literature functions differently, with the center of an argument often being the pillar of truth that the text stands on in front and back. And what that means for us is that the central truth of our text is found in verse 12 through 14. They, they form the, the, the pillar for us as we look at the passage. The author has shown them that there is no rest for those who deny God, who harden their hearts against him, and who turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ. But what? What if? What if, church, there was a means to avoid it, to avoid such a sad epitaph? What if this warning could serve to not only preserve the faith of the Hebrew Christians, but it could actually embolden it? What if even amid suffering and pain, 
there was peace and hope to be found, not in escaping our troubles, but in a Savior who meets us in our troubles to sustain us. That's the gospel hope of every Christian. The hope that we have is not that our lives here and now will be free from trouble and pain. No, as Christians, we see the evil of the world and we see the evil that exists in our own hearts and we have come to know that we need a Savior. We see the brokenness and the hurt and the sin that that sin has brought to our hearts and to our lives and even to the world and we see the forgiving love of God poured out for us in the death of Jesus Christ and his glorious resurrection. No, as Christians, we've repented of our sins and trusted in Christ. We've abandoned any silly notion that this broken world, even as beautiful as it is, can actually give our souls the rest we so desperately need and want. This is why St. Augustine prayed in the opening of his book, Confessions, Thou movest us to delight in praising thee. Let me un-King Jamesify this. You move us to delight in praising you. For you have formed us for yourself. And our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. Augustine, who had lived a life of worldly pleasure, debauchery, and gross immorality, upon turning to Christ, found true rest of heart that only Jesus gives. So maybe you're actually not a Christian here today. I just want you to know we're glad you're here. We're glad that you spent this time with us this morning. But I wonder if you can be honest enough to acknowledge that you have an inner restlessness that never seems to go away. You may be able to silence it for a while, but no, no matter how, how much you try to quiet this restlessness down with your job or with your relationships or with eating or with vacations or pleasure, you continually feel that the restlessness comes back. Hear me, Christ offers rest to weary sinners. Because God has told us we were not meant to find rest in anything or anyone other than him. In fact, the call of Jesus is this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if you're not a Christian today and you're here this morning and you're tired, you're tired of the sins that entangle you. You're tired of trying to find meaning in the things of this world. This is Jesus' open-armed invitation to you. You can lay down your guilt and shame today. You can find the rest that your soul so desperately craves. And if you have questions about what that means or how you can begin following Jesus, you can talk to me or one of the other pastors or ministers who will be down in front after the service. I can assure you, we will clear our calendars to help you with that. But if you are a Christian, verses 12, 13, and 14 give us, a concrete, give us concrete and practical ways to find our rest in Christ, to find it now and to be guaranteed to enter the rest of heaven when we die. So look back at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Step one, pay attention. 
Keep a close watch on your heart. That's the task of every believer. We are not prone to godliness. No, in this life, we still wage war against sin every day. Even once we have been united with Christ, we are being sanctified, so we must give attention to our souls. This doesn't mean getting in touch with your inner self. That's not what's being talked about here. But rather, that you are aware of what captivates your heart. Are there areas of your life right now where Jesus is asking you to trust him and you're like, no, not there? Is there something in your life where Jesus is pulling you towards himself and you're pushing him away? Are there sins that you are playing with and think that you've got them under control? You can stop wherever you're ready. Brothers and sisters, those those are indicators of unbelief. Like warning lights on the dash of your car. When the Holy Spirit reveals to you sinful habits and actions, he's helping you be free of the very thing that steals your rest and threatens your faith. Knowing God's rest is not being inactive, but rather it's actively trusting his word. And where he tells us how our lives are meant to be ordered, we listen and obey because we desire to not have our hearts be hardened by sin. A second step, look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's an important text. Step number two, lean into the local church. Lean into the local church. Hear me, brothers and sisters. Your personal spiritual growth is a community project. It's important. I want to say that again because if you write anything down, most, well, actually just write the scriptures. That's good. But write, this is a really good second tier thing to write down. Your personal spiritual growth is a community project. In our country, founded upon individual freedoms, we have often imported those ideals into the local church, and they have created churches that are filled with individuals who are connected to one another in name only. We wonder why people drift away from Christ. Now, surely there's personal sin involved, but the church should have been pursuing the drifting ones, calling them to return to Christ. And notice the author of Hebrews says, every day, As long as it is called today, he encourages these Christians to share their lives with one another for the sake of what? For the sake of persevering in the gospel. I mean, how meaningful is this to suffering Christians? To look at our brothers and sisters and through tears say, don't give up. Don't walk away. Christ died for you so that you'll have real hope. Don't give that up. Look to Jesus. He's with you. He won't leave you. I mean, maybe you can actually recall a time where you were brought low in this life and a Christian brother or sister did just that for you. Maybe they didn't say anything. Maybe they just sat with you in your grief. But their very presence whispered the love of Christ into your aching heart. 
What a gift. Maybe you think of someone in the church right now who you know is struggling. Can you not encourage them after the service this morning? Invite them for lunch today or for coffee or dinner later this week and encourage them? The call to action here from the author of Hebrews is that we would, as a church, be zealous for one another's good. That we would build up one another in the faith, keeping each other from the lies of sin. So whether or not you knew it before today, you know it now, you have a responsibility to help each other get to heaven. It's not dependent upon you. Jesus won heaven for you. But the real time way he accomplishes his plan to get you to heaven is through the brothers and sisters in Christ you are in community with in a local church. Christians who seek to grow in Christ in isolation are not obeying this passage. In fact, they are forsaking the plain teaching of scripture. We must be working to encourage one another in the fight of faith. Because I love Charles Spurgeon, I love how he wrote of his own view of ministry with language from Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote this. I am occupied in my small way as Mr. Greatheart was employed in Bunyan's day. I do not compare myself with that champion, but I am in the same line of business. I am engaged in personally conducted tours to heaven. And I have with me at the present time, dear old father, honest. I'm glad he is still active and alive. And there's Christiana, and there are her children. It is my business, as best I can, to kill dragons, to cut off giants' heads, and to lead on the timid and the trembling. And I am often afraid of losing some of the weaklings. I have heartache for them, but by God's grace and your kind and generous help in looking after one another, I hope we shall travel safely to the river's age. Oh, how many have I had to part with there. I have stood on the brink and I have heard them singing in the midst of the stream and I have almost seen the shining ones lead them up the hill and through the gates into the celestial city. Church, let us give personally conducted tours to heaven to each other. Let's live a life together to make sure as much as it depends on us, we're going to help one another get there. Finally, look at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end, firm to the end. Step three, hold your confidence in Christ firmly. When you are guarding your heart and giving and receiving encouragement, all that remains is to cling to Christ by faith. That is no small thing. But don't surrender your confidence to sin. Look to Christ. Don't be troubled by the word if here in this text, as though your salvation is in question. The author is actually saying that which proves true. Those who are truly in Christ will persevere until the end. He this is Pastor David Tarkington. We apologize for the abrupt ending on this sermon recording. It appears that we had an electrical surge on the day that this service took place. And thus, the end of the sermon it has been cut off. We do encourage you to go to our website if you can at firstfam.org. Look under sermons and you can find the transcript for the full sermon for this day. 